Um, <clears throat> we're back in First Peter um, today. Um, excited to continue through and plow through um, this series here in this passage. And you know, I, as I as I was working on this, is it, it you know this passage kind of goes into um, end time stuff. Now, some of y'all, as y'all go through this, it's going to kind of blow your minds that this is end time stuff in this passage. Because I'm not going to have a chart out telling you when the beast is going to be released. You know, I don't, I'm not going to come out with a theory of the rapture, a theory of the millennium. You know, most people, when they think of end times, they think of the process of the end times the um, participation in the end times and the position of the end times versus the person who ends times. You know, I, 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 people always ask me, when they ask me a bunch of questions about Revelation, they say, what do you think? What do you think is going to happen? I said, well, you, you're asking the wrong question. They were like, what do you mean you're asking the wrong question? I said, because verse 3 of chapter 1 sums up the book. Says something key. Says the revelation of Jesus. <laughs> In other words, it's him being revealed. And today, I, I want to kind of, I'm not going to bring out charts. I'm not going to argue about what the end is going to be like. But it's interesting that in this passage, Peter talks about the end times in some of the most practical language you ever want to hear it in. As a matter of fact, if you look at most of the apostles, if you look at most of the apostles and their apostolic delegates, those who are an extension of the authority who wrote New Testament books, you will see that the focus of them talking about the end times is never the process. And if all you can do is sit around and argue about the process, you're going to always miss the person. And Every time they talk about end times, one of the things that they talk heavily about is the practice of the believer in light of the end coming. In other words, the future that you believe is going to happen will author and promote and help you in your present practice. If you have a bleak future, if you like, you know, I can't remember that movie where all the thug girls was in. What was the junk? Set it off. See, y'all knew. Y'all knew. Thug sell. Um, but you see Queen Latif at the end of that thing, she, know, she didn't have a vision for the end. All she had a vision for was the thug life. So she got out the car, huh? you know, and got shot all up, right? Just shot up. Like, if that's what you believe, you're going out hard. It's going to, like, if going out hard is your eschatology, you know what I'm saying? You know, going out hard is your eschatology, then it's going to really color how you live now. If you believe you're going to turn into a flower, <coughs> then it's going to, I'm not trying to make fun of people who believe that we're going to become one with the force, you know, but um, I'm, I'm not trying to make fun with them, but I, but I am saying, Whatever you believe the end is going to be like or the future is going to be like, you're going to set your life up to mirror what your expectations of the future are going to be like. 
And so Peter, in in the same vein, begins to walk these Christians who are going through socioeconomic suffering. This is prior to the heavy uh, suffering under uh, Nero's rule. It's latter Claudius, early Nero, before um, Christians were being used as blowtorches at night for candles at night in his camp. It's right before that. But they were feeling the strain of some of that. And Peter is preparing them philosophically based on the Christian faith to have their minds zoomed in on the end, but not in a way that have you just looking off in the future. Just standing there doing nothing. Well, what you doing? Well, you know, chilling. Walking outside, going to the corner store in your bedroom shoes. Just always with with pajama pants on and a t-shirt. That looks chill. You know, I know some of y'all do that, so I ain't trying to make fun of you. But if somebody's dressed like that all the time, it looks like they're perpetually playing Xbox and PlayStation. You know what I'm saying? Just look like you're perpetually eating popcorn and watching TV and on your cell phone. See, if the, see, see, in other words, if you don't have a vision of the future as no future, then you will have no present. And so Peter, beautifully, in these verses, in verses 7 through 11, I hope we get through them all. I'm going to try to get through them all. <laughs> Just a few verses and. He helps us a whole bunch as believers to talk about what we're going to talk about today. Want to know what we're going to talk about today? End time ethics. End time ethics. Peter in verse 7, talking to the Christians in Asia Minor, says to them, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, be sober-minded, For the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another. Earnestly, earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. We're going to stay on that one when we get to it. As each has received a gift, use it to serve or employ it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Say varied grace. Yeah. Some of your translations may say manifold grace. Who, whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that purpose clause, in everything God may be glorified through who? To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. End time ethics. First point. Pursue personal spiritual health. You're going to have end time ethics. (coughs) You're going to have to pursue personal spiritual health. Although he's talking to a community, he's zooming in on each Christian although they are linked together in what he wants them to do and be. You can't have together what we don't have individually. Okay? So, 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 so he, he wants them to have personal spiritual health. He says, the end is at hand. Beautiful. The, the, the apostles always wanted God's people to live as if Jesus is coming back immediately. He wanted us in the midst, it's interesting, it's a paradox. 
He wa- the, God wants us content, and he wants us patient, yet on the edge of our seats. It's interesting, right? How can you be patient, be content, yet be on the edge of your seat? And he, he basically is trying to help them to understand the fact that the Christological future, in other words, Christ coming back should impact your now. All the way throughout 1 Peter, he talks a lot about the day of visitation. He talks a lot about the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here is interesting. He doesn't go into a wealth of theological premises. He's kind of already built a, 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 very, a very strong Christology, study about who Jesus is and what he came to do. But now you're going to see a string of imperatives, commands, where he is going to begin saying, okay, this is what it looks like now to practice a Christ-centered life in the midst of challenges, in the midst of suffering, in light of a hopeful future. And he says the end is at hand. I like when Jesus first came on the scene. He said, repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, uh, my gospel's prophet seminary said, he said, that could be translated, the, the kingdom of heaven is within your grasp. See, whenever there's end-time prophecy or end-time language, it's, it's, it's this motif in the Old Testament called the day of the Lord. Say the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is ultimate yet imminent. Let me, let me, let me explain what I mean by that. There are small days of the Lord, then there's a big day of the Lord. Small days of the Lord is when God sovereignly says, I am going to pierce eternity and get into time and reward the righteous and bring shame to the wicked. And one of the things that God does during the times where we're on planet Earth and when Christianity is going on is, is, is he holds back the full measure of his wrath because he's storing wrath up in a cup. I can't imagine the size of the cup. I know it's a euphemism, but can you imagine how angry God is with human beings about sin? I know we like the God who loves you and has a plan for your life. I know we like that sermon, but he's also an angry God who's righteously angry. He's not like the angry dad that comes home drunk and beats you senselessly because of a lack of focus. And be, he's not the drunk, uh, the, 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 the person that's just angry and outburst. He's not an outburst. His anger is pointed and controlled and righteous. That means he's the only one that has the right to be fully angry and be right. See, when I get scared, when I get angry, because I'll re- I do some old goofy, some old ugly, some old foolishness. Even my attempts at righteous anger are still filled with great sin. But I don't want to compare my anger to the anger of the living God. That's, that, that's, that's, a, that's, that's no competition, no game there. <laughs> so when we talk about the end at hand, Believers are being called in uniquely to be reloaded, if you will, with a biblical philosophy of life and practice. And so here he starts with two imperatives, two imperatives that are powerful, 
powerful, powerful imperatives. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded. Now, as I began to do my exegesis in this passage, I saw a unique similarity between the definition of a sober-minded and self-controlled. It's very, very interesting here. Uh, what I saw was the words were so close that they form what's called a hendiadis. Let me explain that. A hendiadis is when the Bible uses two synonyms to emphasize more of what it's trying to say without just using one word. It's, it's trying to get, and, and, and what, and, but they say two different, some, somewhat two different things a little bit, but it's a great emphasis on a unified front. When he says be self-controlled, it means, it means to be, um, have a sane mind. It means to be spiritually sane. It means when stuff happens to you, don't lose your mind. Real simple. Now, what mind is he talking about not losing? He's not just talking about you flying off the handle. He's talking about you losing the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says we have received what? The mind of who? Right. The word of God gets in that and we have the information as well as the mind of Christ. So we are not to lose our minds. He says spiritual insanity looks like knowing your future in Christ and not living in line with it. That's whenever a Christian <coughs> begins to wig out, the Bible calls them insane. They're not schizophrenic. They, they don't have ADHD. They're not popping any pills. Now, and and I, I don't mean that because some people have to do that. But he's not talking about physical sanity. He's talking about spiritual sanity. And any Christian that thinks that they can live their life how they want to, is insane. He says you need to be put in the spiritual asylum. But, but in the spiritual asylum, you don't put on a physical straitjacket and get put in a padded room. That's, that's, that's not what happens to you. You have to be plunged, and he's going to let us know where that asylum is. But it's not an asylum where you're left off to yourself and you go up to a window and you grab pills from it and go say, that's not what he's talking about. He wants Christians to really be free of their minds, unchained from worldly philosophies. Worldly philosophies is not just some great intellectual treaties, whether it's Gnosticism or, 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 or New Age or some opposing religious philosophy. Those are the easy ones to say someone's insane about. But the things that he's talking about based on the passage. Now, the passage, when you go back to what we talked about last week, he listed grievous sins that make Christians look insane. He said debauchery was one of them. Debauchery is having a unchained biblical values and practicing them. He says, whenever you start sexing down how you want to do, running out, going to crazy, it says, it, the Bible calls it wild parties. And the Bible say everything, y'all. Y'all think that God don't be up on stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like, God don't know about that. I know he calls it, you know, fornication, but no, he got words specific. He called orgies, um, wild parties, drinking parties. Like, dang, the Lord be getting kind of specific with my stuff. You know what I'm saying? But that's what it looks like 
to be spiritually insane, to live your life as if God has no biblical rule and as if being in Christ means to be in bondage. When you treat the Christian faith like it is such a burden and so, like you, you ain't free. You don't understand freedom because we think that freedom is doing what we want to do and God stamping it. That's not freedom. That's called bondage. That's called lock, bowling. That's real bowling chain. <laughs> so when he talks here about self-control, it's not the usual word for self-control. Talking about past, he's talking about sanity. Then he says, not only be, he said, not only you, do you need to be, have spiritual sanity. He says, you also, dang, top ain't on. Um, he said, not only do you need to be spiritually sane, but he says, you also need to be sober-minded. He says this over and over and over and over again. He said it in chapter one, several times. He said it in chapter two, and he said it in chapter three. Now he's saying it again in chapter four. In other words, he says, I don't want you to, he said, I want you to not only have a sane philosophy of life, be sane. But second, I want you to be sober. Sober, pointing to the fact that I want your mind unintoxicated by anything. I do not, 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 not and now he's not just talking about getting drunk here, getting tipsy. Blame it on the Henny, blame it on the club. Blame, he ain't talking about that. He ain't talking about that. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Some people are like, what is it? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Blame it on the alcohol. Blame it on the. Amen. Anyway. <laughs> Sober. He's not talking about being physically intoxicated. He's talking about spiritual intoxication. Now, spiritual intoxication can lead to physical intoxication, but because physical intoxication comes because of a bad philosophy spiritually. But he's talking about a broader realm of drunkardness. He's talking about getting drunk off of your own fantasies. He's talking about getting drunk off of you. You know how some of us look in the mirror and we, we like, dang, I'm going to kill it today. I see women about to run off the road sometimes. <laughs> it's talking about, I'm not talking about, you put on your makeup, girls. Don't, I ain't, you know, saying don't, don't do it. We, we got to do it. Dresses, you know, but just make sure I ain't going to go there. Praise God. I ain't going to go there. But, <laughs> praise the Lord. But. We need to not be intoxicated by anyone, anything, and any place except for Jesus. Intoxication. So these two words put together basically talks about um, Paul. Paul was, I mean, Peter is really focusing God's people on the need to have healthy spirituality that begins with your value system, your value system, your way of thinking. Stinking thinking got to be put out, removed. Everything that opposes the cross philosophically must be challenged. If anything, in other words, 
he's talking about being relentlessly committed to voidness. So we're called to be sold, sold out. Like I remember when I was sold out for God. That shouldn't like be a memory. I remember. I remember when I first started, when I first started working with Dorian. One of the guys mentored me. He's, you know, I was sharing. I was practicing sharing the gospel with the with the streetlights. When I was when I, I mean I was just you know what I'm saying. Oh, I, and I was practicing everything. Everybody that walked past dogs, I'm like, hey, you know, trying to share the gospel with them. You know, and one of my mentors said, you know, I remember when I was like that. And I told him, I said, how are you going to say you remember when you was like that? Do you still, you know, get like we shouldn't have a point in our life where we, we should live our spiritual life on level 10. We should be always pushing. Peter says, do not let, and remember, they're going through struggles and challenges and trials. <coughs> do not let, do not let your time with God wane when you go through challenges. Load your mind. I remember last week, I, it was a couple of days, I did not feel like being with God. I'm going to be straight up. I just wanted to get up and go on with my day. I felt a couple of days last week like getting with God was an interruption to my day. An interact, ah, getting with, then I had to, whoa, what am I doing? Had to re, I had to re, like, and many of us, would be honest, many of us have felt that way. Many of us have felt like, dang, like, I got a, man, I got stuff on the burner. You messing up the swag, you know what I'm saying? It's like, God, like, swag? You know, looking at, God is like, what is your day like without me? Apart from me, you can't do anything. And, anything, and that doesn't mean that your devotional time makes God gracious to you. Grace is unmerited. So I want you to say, well, if I don't spend time with God today because I didn't pray a certain way, then, see, that's works-based relationship. Okay, so I don't want you sitting up talking about, well, if, no, I'm just saying, that, but, but, they, but I do feel funny, just me, if I don't get my mind aligned with a sober philosophy for the day. That may sometimes mean meditating on the verse you went through yesterday versus just trying to read through a bunch of chapters. See, some of us just running through books, ain't got no word in us. I read the Psalms, what you remember. Man, yeah, man, I was going through that. You know, no. Has, has anything stuck to your ribs and changed you? And you think about during the course, ah, I was reading that yesterday, the other day. I'm just meditating on that. Some of us need to stay in three verses for like two weeks, sometimes. Because we need to get our minds, so because we spend a lot of time with our minds all over the place. I really need to get off this point. But, um, but we, spend, we've been, we spend so much time with our minds all over the place and spend very little minds, like, like times, Bringing one of the one of the least used, and this is why because it's the mind. One of the least used Christian graces and disciplines is meditation. Why do you think in Psalm one nineteen, where he's talking about the word, he uses the word meditate so many times? Why why does he do that? Because meditation means you chewing on the Bible like chewing gum to get all of the flavor you can out of it. Now, unlike Wrigley's and all of these others, the word of God never runs out of sweetness. 
And see, you can keep chewing and chewing the, 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 the peppermint taste of it, the honey taste of it, the sugar taste of it is as intense when you first put it into your soul, just like when you first put that gum in your mouth. And so I pray that we don't become an already know that group of people. I already got that. See, when you start getting like that, that means you don't appreciate the riches and sweetness of the scriptures. And so that's why we have to be, because that means whenever you begin to go, oh, that means you're, you're insane right now. You're, in, you're living out some old spookiness. And so he wants, he wants them first to have a healthy, personal spirituality. He, he, that's very, very, very important to our Christian life and the Christian life of others. But listen to what he says, though. This is powerful. Check out how powerful this is. He says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. What in the world does sober-mindedness and self-control have to do with your prayers? Well, in light of the context, some people will go to verse 7 of chapter 3 and think, like the husband doesn't live with his, and understand it with his wife, understand the way, will have prayers hindered. That's true. But don't equate this with that. It's not that your prayers are hindered here because of, because of doing something in particular. Here, basically, it means your prayers get hindered specifically because you're not praying the right prayers because you're praying about the wrong things if you even pray at all. In other words, he says, when you're sober-minded and you have some spiritual self-control, when you're sa spiritually sane and not drunk, and you're pray you will pray, first of all, that means you'll actually get into prayer. That means you'll actually pray. Not only that, <coughs> you won't be praying about some bugness. Now, now, now a lot of times, you know, just because you felt good when you prayed, don't mean God felt you when you prayed. Somebody going to catch that on the way home. I just felt the spirit in my time with God today. I mean, it was so sweet. Jesus was in there. Me, I mean, we were drinking coffee and tea and you, um, singing hymns. Like, you can feel how you want to feel. But if you're not praying God's heart back to him, your prayers are going to struggle. Now, there are times where you get to vent, like the Psalms. God, I'm frustrated. God, that's healthy. Because that means that you see God as a safe place. But when you start asking him for some old bugness, you know what I'm saying? You know, God, I'm just saying, I'm trying to ride on, uh, on four foes. You know what I'm saying? I believe I should be on four foes. So I said, what in the world is four foes? You know, God, I, I really think it would bless the kingdom if I had that jacket. I mean, God, the old, in the Old Testament, they had multiple wives. In other words, I'm just using those hyperboles to say, listen, are your prayers biblical? Have you ever read the Bible? Like, because some of us, the reason why we're doing the wrong thing is because we're not meditating on the right thing and asking God for his thing. 
How right now do your, does your prayer life need to change? Some of, some of us need to look at the scriptures and pray back to God good things. Based on, that's why I like the fact that upper room prayer is going through the prayers of Paul. We really need to learn how to pray. Because he says, this happened for the sake of your prayers. Because if you have some old bugged out, insane prayers based on a jacked up mind, your prayers are going to just bounce off these walls. Like bat and ball. And so he wants to see them have a comprehensive, healthy, spiritual life. And, and you can't, and, and the reason why is because of what he's about to say. <clears throat> now he's about to go from personal relationship to community relationship. And so what he wants them to do is, is God wants us from the inside out. He don't want, God doesn't like it when we front. He likes total unveiled honesty that has a passion for renewal. And so he goes in the next verses, which brings us to our next point. If you're going to have end time ethics, you're going to have to pursue personal spiritual health, but then you're going to have to passionately work through relational tension. Now this is rich here. And I may not be able to get past this part right here. This is rich. This is very rich because I'm blown away about the language here and how it connects to the broader breadth of Scripture. In verse 8, it says, Above all, watch it when the apostles say that. Peter says it, I mean, Paul says it in Colossians 3. Above all. That means this is something that needs to be practically exalted. He says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. <laughs> Dang. It's interesting that he says, he doesn't just say, keep loving one another. Oh, we love each other. How you doing? He says, he says no, I want it to go beyond the surface. He says, I want you all to love each other, and he gives an adverb, earnestly. Wow. He calls them to authenticity in their love of one another. In other words, he says, and, and it's interesting that he says keep. <clears throat> it's a participle pointing to continuing to do this. When you don't feel like loving somebody, love them. Because you know how raggedy we can be and become unlovable. Practically. I don't feel like dealing with you right now. He calls them to authenticity in Christian relationships. And he calls them to passionately pursue it. He says, do this earnestly. And he says, but I'm going to give you one key way to do it. One key way to do it. Look at it. It says, since love covers a multitude of sins. Guess what that is? It assumes that there's going to be tension that happens in Christian relationships that stop us from really liking and loving each other. He said, he said, this is, he said, this is the big, he said, this is the biggie right here. I'm just going to give you one application. It's too weighty to go through like nine. He said, I'm going to just give you one. Love one another. And listen, the word cover here is a powerful word. Powerful word. The word cover here means not making public haste to put people on blast. That means 
if I come to someone about my sin and I say, sis, bro, I'm struggling with boom, then you, and they're coming repentantly, then you respond, oh, man, let me, let me walk with you through this. But Peter wants them not to do something in particular. You know, Pastor Ebo, he was talking to me the other day. Keep him lifted. He's struggling with bam. It has the idea of people going out spreading what someone is struggling with without a desire to see them stop struggling. In other words, you're just vastly telling people, yo, boom, yo, boom, yo, boom, yo, boom, and just dropping. And then all of a sudden, people's view and climate of that person changes. Because it's now colored with your inability to walk biblically with someone in love. So now people's idea of that person is shot because you've chosen to expose them unbiblically. It says the idea is handling people with grace when they are at fault versus joyfully putting them out there. As showing a kind of attitude towards failures of others. It means to conceal, keep it secret. There's stuff that I shouldn't find out about. There's stuff that brothers and sisters shouldn't find out about if they are already repentant. If someone repents, shut it up right there. It's over. Oh, you know what? So-and-so was dealing with that. You should talk to them. What is what the world? And we just put them out there like that. James 5 says, <coughs> James 5, 20, it says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will what? Cover a multitude of sins. <coughs> In 2 Corinthians, I don't have time to go there. 2 Corinthians chapter um, 4, verses 5 through 11, right? It, it, it goes back to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and chapter 6. What happened in chapter 5 is a guy was sleeping with his stepmom. Paul said, put the joker out. His sin is already public and he's unrepentant. Um, put, put him through the restoration process, not the ostracizing process. Y'all heard the difference, right? Put them through church restoration. Fall back from them. Starve them of what it's like to experience God's grace among God's people. But then, main man is broken about his sin. 2 Corinthians, actually it's chapter 2, not chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. Paul begins to walk the uh, Corinthians, because they, they got so arrogant that they kept putting the person on blast because their reputation was so bad because of the way the Christians didn't handle it, then the way they did handle it, the guy was repentant, and they wouldn't let him come back in community with them. And Paul says, listen, and verse 11 is key. He says, let him back in. Why? Because the enemy, we are not 
We're not, um, we're not ignorant of the enemy's devices. What is the enemy's device? When someone is repentant of their sin, and instead of opening our arms and receiving them back in, we push them further out because of our view of what that sin is like. And he says, do not do this because this will push the brother further out and send him into despair, send her into despair. He said, love covers a multitude of sins, y'all. So that means we got to learn how to deal with people's sins. Guess what? Because all of us are going to do a bunch of it. All of us. We're going to do a whole bunch of sinning. Now, the question is, how do we deal with it? Now, we know this sin has been dealt with positionally, but now we have to work through it practically. And so what he wants us to do is he wants us to begin to look at biblical philosophies. I went over to Proverbs 17.9. And it says, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. The Bible talk, I told y'all the Bible talk about everything. The Bible even know how backbiting, well-meaning people can tear up relationships because they chose not to keep their mouth closed about something that someone finally, do you know how much nerve it takes sometimes to expose yourself? Do you know how much courage, that's a very courageous act to admit that you messed up and want to bring it to somebody else to help you through it. And then when you say it to them, they put you out there. And they're like, that's what I was afraid of. I knew y'all were, what y'all, y'all, see, that's how y'all always are. And then people end up walking away from Christianity, walking away specifically from the church, and, be, and spending years in dormant bitterness, fermented unforgiveness, and frustrated with the local church because we don't know how to love people through their sin. That is painful, y'all. If anything, we're not talking about letting people just hang around and continue to say, I did that, I did that, I did that, the same thing. I did that, I did that, I did that. Like, that's not what we're talking about. There's someone perpetually just coming to dump but not change. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about how to love people through stuff. And we as a community have to learn that. We as a community, I, I need, we need people who can ride or die with us. See, I, I need people on the team that I'm not on pins and needles about whether or not you're going to chop it up with us. We need that. We need commitment to one another. A loving commitment to, that when someone admits something that we're not afraid of what they're going to think. And not only that, where we're going to go. So we really, by God's grace, need to live this out. It's interesting. He says covers in the Hebrew is, is interesting. It says how people respond to the faults of others reveals whether or not they love. The fault of a friend and one who repeats news about it. The former promotes love. That's who covers the sin because he cares about the person. The latter divides. Seeks is a sense of seeking to secure and procure or promote love, they can, there can be no friendship without such understanding and discretion. I like this quote by McCain. He says, it's this, he said, this observes that this line refers to a person who breaks up friendships by scandalous gossip, 
even if it is done with a kind of zeal for the welfare of the community, for it will destroy love and trust. Without trust and without love, there is no relationship. Without relationship, you can't do ministry. You cannot do ministry with people you don't trust. You're going to be like, oh, they want my position. They want to do this. And if you don't trust each other, and, but trust is built through loving one another through our difficulties. And after a while, as people continue to trust one another through that, and there's a credibility, I hope that we build a great credibility for loving people through their struggles. I, I mean, I really, and the, because that's where commitment and bonding together happens. That's why people weep at going away parties when someone's leaving. Why? Because they walked with the community in a particular way, and they're going to miss that. That means that they were a deep part of it, not cult or anything, but deeply a part of it in a way that them not being there almost is like snatching their heart out. If you were leaving today, how will God's people feel about you? Because when you leave, what you're known for will let you know what you, were meant, what, what you meant to the community. And so it's important, y'all, that we become a beastly loving community of believers, loving God's people, spending time with them, and allowing God's grace to mutually affect and infect us. What's interesting about this issue is it's one of the sins God hates. It's one of the, like, God rarely says he hates something, but he not only says he hates them, he calls them an abomination. That means, God says, I understand people are sinners, right? But abomination means you next level. You know, he ain't got to, I mean, when God, like, God ain't running out of words, but euphemistically, let's say he ran out of words for something, he just said, that's an abomination. And it... <laughs> In Proverbs 6, verse 16, it says, there are 16, I mean, I'm sorry, six things. Dang, that'd be a lot. He's like, Lord, just calm down, God. Dang. There's six things that the Lord hates. Seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, that means pride. A lying tongue. Hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil. Wow. A false witness who breathes out lies, and listen to this, and one who sows discord among brothers. That's one of the things that the Lord hates. He hates when you on purpose make people look down on someone, and that's your motivation. God hates that. And I hope by God's grace, I don't want us to gloom and doom it out, but I do want us to meditate on this and begin to ask God, Lord, am I one of these seven things when it comes to people's sin? <laughs> Is my goal to see people come to repentance? Or is my goal to really exalt where I'm not by showing where they are? God hates that. I guess I will be able to get to the end today. Praise God. Okay. Last point. Last point. Last point. 
practice spiritual gifts for practical edification. Practice spiritual gifts, in time ethics, for practical edification, building up, right? Verses 9 through 11. We're going to do verse 9. It says, as each one or each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. I like this. <laughs> it's interesting. He's, he, he, he basically goes into us using our spiritual gifts. This is another, it's, it's, it's kind of mind-boggling right here. It's, it's real mind-boggling. Because when you look at this verse, you see that the Holy Spirit, based on 1 Corinthians chapter 12, is sovereign. The Holy Spirit is sovereign. That means that he can do what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, just like the Father and just like the Son. And one of the things that he is sovereign in is who he gives gifts to. The Godhead has given the Holy Spirit responsibility to give out spiritual gifts based on his desired ends and what maximizes glorification of Jesus Christ. So you just got some a pneumatology real quick. So we see the sovereignty of the Spirit. And one of the things, and, and, and I'm saying, oh, I went past, dang, I supposed put the poem. I went past it, my bad, y'all. I'll go back, I got ahead of myself. I like that part, though. All right, we're going to back up, back to verse 9. It says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh-oh. Show, uh, uh, hospitality means be a friend of strangers. Now, back in that day when a stranger was coming through, they had to kind of, have a letter from someone that knew them so that if they went to someone's house, they're not just knocking on the door talking about, I need some, can I have some bread? Like, they, it wasn't like that. And, of course, they didn't glean the edge of their field so people can eat. But we're talking about, it's talking about being a friend of strangers here. And one of the things that he says, he says, being a friend of strangers means um, to basically for Christians, and especially for other Christians, to make sure that we were relationally open to God's people. Now, when you look at Romans chapter 12, in Romans chapter 12, it talks about a gift of hospitality. Now, many times you will see in the New Testament a spiritual gift of something, but yet that same spiritual gift, although all believers don't have it, every Christian is made responsible to on some level apply that particular thing. So he says here, he says, he says, listen, he says, show hospitality without grumbling. So that means somebody comes over, Lord gives you the opportunity to bring them over. You know, and you go in the kitchen, and they just eating, eating, eating. I mean, eating. You go in the kitchen like, dog. Man, I guess they ain't coming back no more. They, I don't, I, that was about the last three days, you know. Main man done ate half the chicken, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Y'all want anything else? But you were just acting like you ain't want him to have no more. He pulled a full glass of juice, just all the juice. All my juice. I just went to the grocery store. <laughs> Y'all know what I'm talking about. Somebody come over and you act like the whole time they're there, you don't want them there. Oh, yeah. Even though some of us need to know how to go, you know. But, I'm, but that's not what we're talking about today. You know, we're talking about the people that need to be welcomed. Amen. You know what I'm saying? So you're sitting there, ah! 
<laughs> Boy, what you, what, you, what you got on for tomorrow? What's going on tomorrow? When somebody asks you what you're doing tomorrow, that means that they're really ready for you to go. <laughs> it means, dang, it's like, Dan is like, ah! I mean, show hospitality. <laughs> so he asked him to show hospitality without grumbling. Then he says, as each should receive the gift, use it to serve one another. It's interesting. <laughs> as he says, as each one has received the gift, use it to serve one another. The assumption in this passage is that everyone has a spiritual gift. Everyone. Some people have multiple gifts. Some people have the same gifts. But each gift is not on the same level of skill. Someone can have the same gift as someone, and I don't care how much the person with the lesser, not, with the lesser grace within that gift, no matter how much they practice, the Holy Spirit said, this is how much you get. And that's all you're going to get. And he's using it to sanctify you in the body. And he doesn't want you to cover it, right? cover somebody else. They do theirs better than my Holy Ghost. You know, what's good with mine? You know, I'm going to worship you so I can get it, you know, I'm going to get. No, nah, it's not going to happen. But the question is, how do you know what your spiritual gifts are? I don't believe you take a gift inventory. I, I, I just don't think. Because I, 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 some of y'all, some of us will say, I really want to have words of wisdom. You know what I'm saying? You can want all you want and you can try. Oh, I bet you that's one by check. You know, that's not how you learn you have spiritual gifts. You learn whether or not you have spiritual gifts is you just get busy among God's people. Just get busy. And then people are going to begin coming up to you saying, you know what, you're real hospitable. Really? You know what, you're real hospitable. You know what, you, you're really good at teaching. Like you, I mean, every time you teach, everybody's listening, and you seem to have a handle of the material. And people keep saying that to you. People keep saying that to you. Um, you man, every time you do something, it's very, very well organized. Like, in other words, you tend to lean towards the organizational sphere of things. In other words, what you need to do is get busy and allow God to affirm what your gift is from others versus you reading gifts on yourself. I'm always funny with people saying, I know I'm really gifted at. I'm like, all right, we'll see. And so, but, but we need, we, you got to get, get busy. But if you're not getting busy among believers, then what's going to happen is, is what he says in the next part of the verse. If you get busy, if you don't get busy, this is what can happen. He says, as stewards, means a manager, is not your gift technically, it's God's. He just got it loaned to you. So that means you can't be prideful because it ain't yours. It, it, it just, God just loaned it to you. And what he says here is he says, as stewards of God's varied grace, beautiful. As stewards of a God's varied grace. Interesting, the word varied here is, is a real, real interesting word. Varied means multicolored as, in, as indicating a diverse of many kinds of something. Different types or <clears throat> manifestations. This points to multiple ways which grace impacts us through the person's gift. In other words... Our spiritual gifts in action is a means of grace for the body. Check this out. There is grace that the church can only get, that God has only allotted 
to come through people's spiritual gifts. When we don't use, know, or use our spiritual gifts, the church misses out on grace that God wants to give to us. And God will not grade grace on a curve. He will not like say, let me up the, no, he will not. Because there's only certain grace that will come through interaction. That's, that's very, very important. Because some churches right now are dying. Because Christians want to just hear a word, not do a word. And, 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 so, and so what's happening is that some of us will sit and we'll compl- we go to this church. Oh, I don't like the way they do this. Go ahead. I don't like the way they do this. I don't like. I don't like. I don't like. I don't like. And you're just all over the place. But the common denominator, first off, is you. <laughs> That's number one. Number two, I always ask people, you don't like no place. You just don't. Ain't nobody good enough for you to be in community. You, you, you ain't just good enough. Where have you cast your lot and brought the grace that God has given to you to that context? Have you ever done that? It's a sin to have a gift. The Holy Spirit took your name in mind and sovereignly chose a gift on whatever grace measure, based on Romans chapter 12, verse 6, whatever measure you got on that gift, whatever grace, there is grace that comes through each and every one of us. This is going to be a hard place to be if you just want to chill. Because we'd rather have three people that's going hard for Jesus than 600 that don't want to be in it. And so it's important for us to get in because there's grace. There's grace through mercies, gifts of mercy. There's grace that needs to come through gifts of service. I know those are the ones you don't hear about. Now, every time somebody email me at the website and say, what do y'all believe about tongues and prophecy? I say, why y'all, is those the only three gifts? Why y'all ain't ask me about the gift of service? Helps. Those are the grimy gifts, right? Do we believe in those? We believe in all the gifts, not just the ones in 1 Corinthians 12. But under and biblically used, not just people wilding out because they say they got a gift. So, so we, we, we want to see God's varied grace. There's edification that won't happen until some of us gets busy. Some of the things that many of us are complaining about right now. God is not going to release his power to bring us and make us more healthy until each one of us decide to get in the mix. Whether you're a college student passing through, whether you're a business person passing through, or whether you've been attending for a while. We're not trying to beat you. We want you to continue to come. God bless you. But our passion, though, is, is, is you need to plug in somewhere even if it's not here. Don't come here just because you want to hear the word or you like the, like the band and the praise team. I pray that it's more than that. I pray that it's more than that. I pray that it's more than that. And listen to the statement that Peter gives right after he talks about God's varied grace. Listen to what he says. The next verse, beautiful. He says, whoever speaks 
as one who speaks the oracles of God, talking about the preaching of the word, he says, don't be, he says, don't be preaching some old out of the Bible stuff. God told me everything God told you and you ain't looked in the Bible. You, you never use the Bible when you preach. It's always from the hip, pow, from the hip, pow, from the hip. He's in the Bible. The one who speaks as speaking the oracles of God is not talking about prophetic utterances here. It's talking about the word, the word, the word of God. So wherever you're going to lock arms, they got to be in the doggone Bible. The, they can't preach a opinion. I mean, I tell people all the time, I may not do a good job one, one or two Sundays and I, I mess up, but guess what? I'm going to die in the Bible. They won't be able to say I wasn't in the Bible. He wasn't in the, t- I'm going to be in the text. That's my Baptist coming out. Yeah, I'm going to be in the text. Just trying to tell you. Can't be walking around looking cool with no Bible. People saying amen to emptiness. What you talking about? We got to be, this is, I don't, I'm not that skilled to edify you without a Bible. I'm not that great of an orator. I need a Bible to help me tell you something that'll change your life. I wish I could stay there for a while. But then listen to what he says. He says, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, serve with passion. If you got the gift of service, you just like to just, I don't want to be seen. I just want, that's, you got the gift. Serve. But then look what he says. He says, in order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. He says, there is glory that God will not get unless we get spiritually healthy, unless our prayers are heard, unless we're dealing with the covering of one another's sins, helping, walking with one another through our struggles. There's glory that God won't get if we put people on blast without love. Lastly, he says, he says, and you need to be using your gifts. <laughs> there's grace that won't come and there's glory that won't be gotten. He says, he says, the purpose of all of this is that God may get maximum glory. Jesus says, my father is glorified <coughs> when you bear much fruit. Then he breaks off into a doxology. I like that. You know, we usually use doc- doxologies at the end of something. But biblically, doxologies are really a beginning, not an end. Oh, man. He, he, say, he says, listen to what he says. He says, he says, he says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. In the middle of the book, he does what usually is done at the end of something in the middle of the book. And the reason why is because he's asking the dominion of God, the power of God, and the glory of God to manifest itself among God's glorious church. God's glorious church. The church is God's bride. 
The church is who God is using to bless the world. The church is God's multivitamin pill for changing the world. And so he said, you got issues with my bread. You got issues with me. And so today, I pray that we commit ourselves to a body, a local community. I pray that. <clears throat> I pray that whoever's hopping, you would stop it. I pray that there would be a stoppage to the hoppage. <laughs> Told you I'm Baptist. Yeah. That's the prayer. That there would be a stop. Because we're in a non-committal generation. We're in a non That's why most of us who got iPhones get all the free stuff. We don't want to commit no loot. So I'm praying that we would commit. I pray that I pray that being online with people will not be a scapegoat from being in life with others. I'm, I pray God to I pray that God would give us a relentless commitment to Jesus Christ that shows itself up in how we're committed to one another. I pray that today our core value of commitment would show itself up and that we would stop dating the church, that we would stop dating relationships, because some of us have real hurts, authentic hurts. And, and I pray, I pray today that God would deal with your hurt, that God would deal with your pain. And I pray that today, that God locks you into committing to something because it shows it will show up in every area of your life. It'll have you dating a bunch of people and never getting married. It'll have you looking for a job but never calling back. It'll have you saying you're going to be somewhere and you're always never there. A lack of commitment will permeate everything. That's why you have to be spiritually healthy. You have to have passion to, to, to work through tension with other believers. You can't punk out. And then you got to use your gift. We need you. We need each and as jacked up as each and every one of us are, we need each other. <laughs> and so, if you're here today and you want to join, not a church, but join into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here today and you've never trusted him as Savior. We got issues too.